I think critical to addressing wage gap for women is to lean really, really hard into the skills and value that we bring to the workforce, identifying that we bring unique value, we bring skills and strengths that are unique to uh, our gender, to our community. And if those skills are not desired, then it's clear that you are not necessarily uh, embraced within the organization you're in. And that's your key to go find a place where your skills and value are very much embraced. The idea of leaning in here is critical, period. When it comes to working, there's a lot to talk about. The great resignation, burnout, wages. And when you're a woman in the workforce, there's an added layer, the so-called she-session, and of course, the wage gap. For some, the gender wage gap is closing. New data from the Pew Research Center shows that in some cities, young women are even making more than their male counterparts. But despite the gap closing among some young employees, Pew found that the gender wage gap overall is holding steady. So what's really the reality for working women, and how are you navigating it? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get to our conversation on the gender pay gap. Joining us to discuss is Richard Fry. He's a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center who analyzed the data on women in the workforce. Richard, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Also with us is Alicia Haradasani Gupta. She covers gender for the New York Times. Alicia, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. And we also have Rebecca Ryan. She's an economist and professional futurist. That means she looks at economics and thinks of ways we can work differently. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jen. We mentioned the Pew Research analysis about the wage gap. What exactly did you find? Richard? So we were looking at um, data that allows us to look at metropolitan areas. And with that data, if you look at all workers working full-time year-round, the pay gap is about 82 cents on the dollar. But if you look at women under the age of 30, including rural areas and other smaller metros, the overall pay gap nationwide for women under 30, they were earning about 93 cents on the dollar. However, there are 22 metropolitan areas, and they tend to be larger metropolitan areas, in which women were either earning the same as young men under the age of 30 or more. Now, there's 384 metros. There's only 22 at which they are at pay parity. But because they included larger metros like New York, Washington, L.A., those 22 metros, 16% of the young women's workforce live in those 22 metros where they're at pay parity or above. So it's not a lot of metros but it's not a trivial share of the young women's workforce. Rebecca, what stands out to you the most about these numbers? Well, as Richard was saying, like this is a small subset of women who are um, earning the same as or more than their male counterparts. But what I find interesting about this is that um, we're, we're 
just talking about age, and we could be talking about other things, like the fact that there are more young women enrolled in law school and enrolled in medical school, and that pay has been coming up for women overall. So we're not looking at true matched pairs here. You know, we're looking at age being the only thing that we're contrasting, and we should be looking at other things like education level and, um, you know, the, the jobs that, that folks have. Now, Richard, you've looked at similar data from 2000. How do the data compare? Yeah, so here, okay, let's first look at the national picture. Again, focusing on young women under the age of 30. In 2000, they earned 88 cents on the dollar. And then, well, how many metros were they either at period or above? It was six metros in 2000, and it was about 5% of the women's workforce. And so, Um, The progress has not been rapid over the past 20 years, but again, among young women under the age of 30, there has been um, some improvement in um, the pay gap from 2000 to 2019. And where did we see that gap closing in 2000? Uh, The only metro in which uh, it was both there in 2000 and in 2019 um, was... uh, um, Los Angeles. And so, again, there have been noticeably a number of metros that have joined sort of the list where they are at pay parity or above. We got this message via our 1A text club. It says, I can't help noticing that men and women don't generally work the same jobs and that unequal pay for unequal work is often a matter of perspective or subjective opinion. Rebecca, how do you respond to that, that there's a difference in the types of jobs men and women have? Yeah, I think this is a, this is an important note to have. And I think we might say that, you know, you think about the first women who really entered the workforce, um, you know, that sort of started this wave, there were two options, nurses or teacher, you know, and now we've got far more women who have supervisory positions and director positions and so forth. But you just go back to, you know, nurses and teachers, and we still tend to undervalue those jobs. So um, I think it's true. I think what the what the listener says is true that women and men do different kinds of jobs. There are far more men in construction, for example, than women, um, and there are far more women in what we call the caring professions than there are men. But I think what the things that the pandemic has proven is that we really undervalue some of these female-dominated uh, positions. We got this tweet from a listener who asks, "What are the numbers for African American women? Is that number rising also?" So, Alicia, what can you tell us? Um, good question. Uh, black women actually are earning 63% of white, what white men earn. Um, and it's even worse for um, Hispanic women. They earn 58% currently of what white men earn. So the wage gap is still kind of wide for both of those demographics. Now, Richard, I want to talk a little bit about Equal Pay Day. It was earlier this year. Explain what it is and why the day changed. Ah. Uh, So equal um, payday is sort of based on um, a calculation of sort of what the gender wage gap is among all workers. And then it slightly varies um, year to year based on what the previous year's measure of the gap is. And the actual, what it refers to is the number of days into the year that women need to work in order to attain the same pay as last year's group of men. Um, So that's how the calculation is done and why it varies a little bit year to year 
because um, it varies annually what the calculation is. So how did that date shift this year? Uh, This year, I believe it shifted earlier by, I believe, I think five or six days, indicating that that there was a small um, increase in the um, number of cents on the dollar that women are earning relative to men. Since they're earning a bit more relative to men, they don't need to work quite as many days into the year. Okay, so Alicia, with the understanding that black women and Hispanic women are still earning less than white women in comparison to white men, where does Equal Pay Day fall for them? It's far later in the year. I I believe in the summer sometime for black women and then in the fall for Hispanic women. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the shift to an earlier Equal Pay Day this year means it's 83 cents on the dollar, but it's still just one cent, you know? So mm-hmm. it, last year, women were earning 82 cents, and it's 83 cents this year. So the, the, the five or six days shift represented one cent. Now, Rebecca, I don't want to ignore the fact that over a million women have left the workforce since February 2020. What impact does that absence have on this data? Well, um, Cheapers, I don't know the impact specifically that it would have on this data, but when I think into the future, one of the things that I think about is, on, a, on the plus side, how many of those women are re-entering the economy but by hanging up their own shingles? So one of the things that we're seeing is this record number of new business startups, You know, people who are applying for their own employer identification number. That's how we measure this in the economy. And it is at record levels. Um, it's, like, it's like the COVID spikes that we're used to seeing graphs for. We're seeing graphs now of these number of new business startups. And anecdotally, I know that a lot of these women, these are women, you know, who say, I'm not going to go back and work for quote unquote, the man, I'm going to start my own thing. I've got rare and valuable skills, I'll be able to have true flexibility, set my own schedule. So that's a real plus. Um, But the other thing that we know is, we've got increasing attention now, for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And we know that when there are more women in the workplace, as one of your callers said, women bring rare and unique perspectives to work. And when there are more women in your workplace, your DEIA efforts tend to do better because those who are marginalized have greater sensitivity uh, around how to make the table bigger for others. So when I hear you talk about this this growth of entrepreneurship among women. I'm curious how you're going to watch for that trend moving forward. Because when I think about um, funding accessibility, you know, being able to get that business loan, do women have the same access to those funds as men? I don't know that their access is absolutely equal. But um, investors are smart. And a couple of examples. One, the SBA now has women business owner centers in all of the 50 states. That just has happened this year, so that is really positive. And here's a very small example. I was with the North Carolina Rural Economic Summit attendees. So these are are rural economic developers in North Carolina. And one of the things that they announced was a huge purse of new money that was going to be targeted at entrepreneurs who are women and people of color because the data is pretty consistent. Women-owned businesses tend to create more jobs. Um, People of color, women and people of color tend to do any loan repayment 
you know, in a, in a really timely and measured way. They're just good bets to make. So I think what we're finding is that the money is starting to find the places where the investments are really solid and women and people of color are proving themselves to be excellent investments. And I just want to make sure to mention, you said SBA, that's the Small, Small Business Association. Now, Alicia, what does it mean when we talk about a she session? So it means the number of job losses during the pandemic that disproportionately actually hit women. And it was the first time in history that an economic recession was uh, hitting women more than it was for men. And so today, as you mentioned earlier, we still have roughly 800,000 fewer women in the workforce than in February 2020. By comparison, there are now more men in the workforce than in February 2020. So, you know, the recovery has been slower for women. Um, and the other thing I really wanted to talk about um, with this with this wage gap is we're speaking generally, but we're not talking about... Um, how it widens over a woman's lifetime. Uh, you know, it falls off a cliff the, the minute a woman turns uh, into a mother. And it doesn't matter how young or old she is when she becomes a mother. But that, that really sort of um, throws a wrench into her earning potential. Mm. Tiffany emailed, I'm a female manager in her early 40s who had to go back to school and switch careers to get a position with decent pay. We recently hired a young man nearly fresh out of college for an entry-level position at a salary very near mine. There is a gender gap, a difference in generational obstacles, and the current staff shortage, and it means people coming into the workforce are getting greater wages while some of us are tied to lower salaries. And another of you shared this, I work as a crime analyst for a local Florida Municipal Police Department. All of my colleagues have second jobs. We've all reached our earning potential aside from annual cost of living adjustments. All similar jobs in our industry pay roughly the same in other cities when local cost of living and taxes are factored in. I feel stagnant unless I quit this industry altogether. We want to hear from you. If you're a woman, how have your wages changed over time? Maybe you noticed a difference when you had a kid. Tweet us at 1A or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. I want to dig more into how parenting plays into this conversation. But Rebecca, first, why have so many women left the workforce? You mentioned not wanting to, you know, work for a company, maybe wanting to go out on your own. But but what other factors are at play? You know, I think there are probably as many different stories as there are women. Um, but generally, I mean, we've known for a long time that the, the work of caretaking, you know, falls to women. Um, we are you know, my wife right now is with her mother who is declining. And when children are at home, um, you know, WFH, work from home, became work from hell mm-hmm. <laughs> during this, during COVID. And so um, I don't think you can paint with a broad brush, but generally we can say that when there is social stress in a family situation, women are the ones who tend to help most with that. Um, or whomever the primary caretaker is. It can be a man. But those things add up over time. And, um, you know, we don't make it easy as a country for women to manage those things. Like, there are only six other countries that don't offer paid time off for maternity leave. And none of those are countries that most listeners would know. So we, America is um, really hurting itself with some of its policies around um, the social and emotional work of family life. A major factor in all of this is parenthood. What impact does becoming a mother have on pay and moving up at work in general? Alicia? Yeah. Um, So actually, I want to piggyback off of something that uh, Rebecca just said. You know, nowhere in the world 
is do men and women do equal amount of caregiving at home, right? So that is a, that is result of a uh, deeply ingrained social expectation. But in the U.S., as Rebecca said, there is also the added layer of having no real safety net to to reduce that burden. And so actually, if you zoom out, um, researchers have found that the lack of help for caregiving is connected to the fact that female uh, labor force participation, even before the pandemic, was more or less flat since the, for about 30 years. So it's because it's because at some point in her life, she has to make a choice between a paycheck and caregiving or reducing her paycheck and caregiving. And so today, mothers earn 75 cents to every dollar that fathers earn. And this is what researchers call the, the motherhood penalty. Um, and for um, along racial lines, it gets even worse. Um, Latina mothers earn 46 cents and black, women, black mothers earn 50 cents for every dollar that white fathers earn. And I want to turn uh, to a quote from Harvard economist Claudia Golden. She wrote, quote, far more mothers and other women who are caregivers have been stressed, frustrated and anxious because they did not leave their jobs than have have been forced to exit the workforce or cut back on their hours. Black women who were not college graduates were hardest hit in terms of their employment and labor force participation. So, Alicia, again, when we look at this intersection of of race and uh, caregiving and work, what do you see there? Yeah, so of course it, it it's worse um, for black mothers, but also it depends very much on college uh, degrees that you've earned, right? As I mentioned earlier, it would have been really it would be really good to see uh, the the women who left the workforce and what their level of college education is versus the women who were able to stay attached to the workforce, even if they were doing extra care work at home. Uh, they were able to afford, you know, maybe getting a nanny or having their grandmother come in and sort of help out with the care work, or they were able to afford reducing their hours slightly and still staying attached to the workforce. Whereas the she session was driven mostly by women in low paid um, uh, part time work, you know, so the, the, the female dominated industries of healthcare, hospitality, restaurants, dining, entertainment. Those are the women who really could not stay attached to the workforce, and they're generally, um, they do not have college degrees. So, Richard, when you analyzed your data, what types of jobs were you looking at when you looked at these areas where women were out-earning men? Um, because I was basically trying to look at things at the metro level and smaller metros, not just New York, Washington, and L.A., and also just younger workers, you can't, you can't cut the data as finely as that. In other words, I couldn't look, for example, at uh, Hispanic women or African-American women in the D.C. metro area um, under 30. So I did not look at what was happening to individual occupations. But what I would um, second in on Alicia's observation that when you look at sort of the what's known as the she session, sort of the decline in the labor force that occurred since 2020, what you will see is it very much differs by education. If you look at women who have at least a bachelor's degree, the college-educated labor force, for the recession, women were a majority of the college-educated labor force, and by late 2021, they were still a majority of the college-educated labor force women's college-educated labor force did not decline over the two years. The she session was very much concentrated among women 
with less than a bachelor's degree. It's less educated women who suffered labor force losses, and their labor force losses were greater than less educated men. So the she session, so-called, the impact of the COVID-19 recession, it was not widely distributed among women, better educated women, they actually increased their labor force numbers, and so did better educated men as well. But the, in terms of the labor force losses and the employment losses, they were concentrated on less educated women. As we've mentioned, it was a reflection of the fact of the kinds of occupations that really got whacked by um, the COVID recession. And again, it was not all occupations. It was a concentrated subset that disproportionately hires less educated women. I want to return to uh, the report uh, from economist uh, Claudia Golden. Again, she she examined COVID-19's economic impact on women. She writes, quote, the pandemic downturn was a she session relative to other recessions and relative to January or February 2020. But gender differences month by month and employment outcomes relative to pre-pandemic level are not large. The big differences are by education rather than gender, and that makes it more similar to previous recessions. So, Rebecca, when you hear this kind of analysis and you hear from Richard and, and Alicia about how education fits into this piece. What trends are you watching long term when it comes to closing that pay gap and and women, especially, not just white women, but women of color as well? How does education fit into that? Oh, this is a great question because what you're getting at is what we in the foresight game call signals. You know, what are the signals of the future? So the first thing that we're going to always look for is if students are reading at grade level by third grade, because if students are reading at grade level by third grade, they're likely to graduate from high school. But then in high school, we've got to watch really carefully and help students to make sure that if they start high school as a freshman, they finish as a senior, right? We've got to look at those high school graduation rates. And then we've got to remember again and again and again, I I was working for the Iowa Department of Education um, years ago when I first started my career, and we knew at the time, and this has continued to be true, that three, four, 75 to 80% of all jobs require a two-year college degree, not a four-year college degree. So we're looking for that as well. How many, how many people are coming through these certification programs or two-year college programs? We're talking about the pay gap in America. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation on the gender pay gap with this email we got from Donna. This is a very sore topic for me. I am 60 years old, and as I have gained more education and experience, I find that younger people, predominantly white men with less education and experience, are hired at a higher rate and higher pay than women. When I had children, upward mobility was not an option, and once I divorced, my income dropped drastically. Another of you shared this. I am a black American woman in her 30s working for a nonprofit. After over five years with them, I am now in a mid-level management position. One of my colleagues was hired recently before he officially graduated college and is already making the same salary as me. When I approach this with my employer, I get the runaround that there are budget constraints, which essentially sounds to me that they're not willing to increase my pay. You can join the conversation. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org or tweet us at 1A. Let us know what the wage gap looks like where you work. And if you're a business owner, are you taking steps to narrow the pay gap? Is that a priority for you? Again, tweet us at 1A or email us at 1A at WAMU.org. I heard two 
uh, different issues in those messages we just read. And Rebecca, I'd like to hear from you first on it. The first is about age and how that intersects with the pay gap. Donna talks about, um, you know, having gained more education and experience, but also how she was impacted by having children. And again, she's seen her her income stagnate over time. Mm -hmm. This is is an important issue. Alicia talked about it at the top of the hour, you know, that there's this notion that two things are happening here. One is there is a a tax uh, on women when they have their first child. We'd done research years ago that it was it was difficult with one child, but when you had two children under the age of six, it really became onerous on women. So this is something that only women can do. Only women can have children. Um, and yet there's an economic tax on that. But the second issue, and this is kind of getting at um, the need for rare and valuable skills, you know, and, and how we as women, how we choose our careers, but our, our salaries do tend to drift up until like our late 40s, early 50s, that's the data I've seen. I'd love Richard or Alicia to correct me on this and what it really is. But so it's these these golden years of earning for women are very limited, especially if we have children. So, the, um, you know, it's uh, again, kind of coming back to the social support um, for women in the workplace and, and getting real about the value that they really bring to the workplace. Richard, is this data you, you've looked at? Yeah, so I'm, I can actually put some numbers on it. So in 2000, if you look at, again, women and men working full-time year-round under the age of 30, back then that sort of pay gap was $0.88 cents on the dollar. Now what I can do is let them sort of age 19 years. Now these workers that used to be under age 30, now they are in their... Uh, they are now uh, 35 to 48 years old. And now if you look at the pay gap among 35 to 48 years old, now women are only earning 80 cents on the dollar. And so we don't know what's going to happen to young women under the age of 30 today going forward. But if they follow sort of the way earlier groups of young women did, you're right. The best sort of years for them relative to men's pay are early in the are early in their careers. What happens is, as they get into their 30s and 40s, um, they partner, they marry, they have children. We've mentioned the motherhood penalty. Um, actually, as they have more children, their earnings are taxed even further. For men, given the fact that there's different sort of um, family responsibilities, for men a different trajectory. For men, if they marry, actually there's actually a premium um, for marriage. And there's no fatherhood penalty among men. And so part of the reason, part of the reason that the gap may widen as they get into their 30s and 40s is indeed sort of differential family responsibilities between men and women. Well, and I want to drill into the age piece of this a little bit more. But first, Alicia, I mean, we're talking about certain types of caregiving can easily be done by either parent. It's not as if it has to be the woman. But what I'm hearing from Richard is that there is an expectation that men are carrying certain responsibilities or fewer responsibilities and thus are more available to work than than women. Does that line up with what you've seen? Yeah. And, you know, they've done research in other countries where there are um, uh, paternal uh, paternity leave and mandatory 
parental leave for both parents. And they found that even if the woman is the breadwinner in the family, they, she is still doing more of the caregiving responsibility. So here it comes back to this deeply ingrained expectation that women are the one who would take care of of uh, children and even you know even if you're taking care of your your own parents you know elderly care is also part of the equation um, and I just wanted to add you know speaking nodding to what the listener said these this wage gap we're talking about really does add up right so by the time a woman retires she's lost hundreds of thousands of dollars so even her retirement is going to be extremely uncomfortable compared to a man's one listener wrote into the 1A Text Club and says, I'm in marketing at a software company. I don't necessarily think I get paid less than my male counterparts, but I think I greatly benefit from having female leaders and bosses deciding my wages. I also can't ignore that I benefit greatly from white privilege, and that could also impact my wages. I have a male partner in a similar industry, and it also gives me a leg up in understanding what I'm worth and what I should be asking for. And another Text Club listener says, how do you find out if there is a wage gap in your current position or even a new position. Jobs have a fairly large salary range, so it is hard to tell. Uh, Alicia, I'm going to come to you first on this. Any advice? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, every almost every state, I think with the exception of one, has an equal pay law. And 17 states have pay transparency laws, uh, which means that they have to post those pay ranges uh, that, the, that the listener was talking about. But the other thing is that um, that's sort of just one step toward pay equity. The other part of it is that companies have to disclose or, or companies should be disclosing their gender pay gap, but also intersectional data. So not only gender pay gap, but uh, racial gender pay gap and college education, gender, racial pay gap, you know, all of the things that we've talked about. And only about 11% of companies actually reveal that kind of thorough data. So there's a lot of work to be done from the company side of actually monitoring and publicly disclosing this information. Because as the, as the listener said, having the pay range is extremely confusing for the person applying for the job. Any practical advice here, Rebecca, if, if you want to learn more about where you stand and whether there's a gap in what you're making as compared to someone else? I, I can imagine that could, be, that could be tricky, but just any practical advice? Well, I mean, as as an owner of a small business myself, I mean, one of the things that I do is I, I go on salary.com, I go on glassdoor.com, and I look at what, you know, people are earning um, in these areas. And those places do tend to be, you know, not gender-based. And maybe that's a plus and maybe that's a minus. But the other point that I want to make here, as Alicia was saying about the intersectional reporting, I had heard a whisper during COVID that one of the larger human resources associations was really encouraging its employers to take a very close look at how it was paying women and men in the same role and leveling up. And I thought that was a really great sort of call to arms. And then the other thing that I I wonder about, I'm watching for, we're hearing more and more companies that are reporting their ESG metrics, environmental, social, and governance metrics. So 
Are they responsible, taking responsibility for climate? How are they doing with their DEIA measures? And this feels like one of those metrics that Alicia just talked about, the intersectionality metric of compensation, that maybe we could start looking for in those ESG reports. Rebecca, you know, work looks different for a lot of Americans right now. Um, There are people who will continue to work remotely here at our station. Some of us are on a hybrid plan. There are some days when my colleagues work from home and some days they're in the office. Is there a moment right now where some people, at least, can apply a little more leverage in this space and and push for for a little more pay? Yes, absolutely. And especially the more rare and valuable your skills are. You know, the more rare and valuable your skills are, the more leverage that you have. And employers are really sensitive to this. You know, most employers can't afford to lose another person, especially a valuable person. So coming into the conversation, both as an employee, as Alicia said, but also as the employer, you know, and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about maybe you can't do a huge 10% increase in comp. Can you do optional Fridays? Could you do Fridays off in the summer? You know, what is it that the person really needs and how can you meet that need? Sometimes these things don't cost anything, but they're just the amount of creativity that people need. That's Rebecca Ryan, an economist and professional futurist. Also with us, Alicia Haradasani Gupta. She covers gender for The New York Times and Richard Fry, a Pew Research Center's senior researcher. Thanks to you all for joining us. Today's producer was Jacqueline Hill. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your great messages. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. 